Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Um, uh, I want to pray for uh, Emmy and Cedric too this morning. Uh, Emmy's mom just passed away, 94 years old, and they're leaving to go, 95, leaving to head for the Philippines on the 1st. Emmy's got her Canada immigration or citizenship test in the morning. Is it the test or the ceremony? The test in the morning and then on a plane to get to the Philippines uh, to be with family. Okay, so, hey, let's pray for Reba too. We're not sure what's happening there. Father, we just uh, thank you uh, for this morning again, the chance just to worship you, Jesus. Uh, We lift up Cedric and Emmy to you and all of their extended family. God, we just pray for your comfort in their hearts and in their lives. Lord, as they uh, go to say goodbye, I thank you, Lord, that Emmy's mom knew Jesus. She's not sad. She's well and in your presence, God. And we thank you for that hope. Thank you for that promise. And God, we pray for your comfort for their family. We pray, God, that you just give uh, Emmy uh, strength, Lord, as she goes into the immigration uh, testing, Lord, and that you would bless that in her life, Lord. Pray for Reba this morning, God. We pray that you'd comfort her, that you'd give her strength, Lord, that uh, you'd protect her, and that there would be safety for her and that little one, we pray in the name of Jesus. And God, I thank you that we can come to your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the the written word that leads us to the living word, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who who came in the name of the Lord. You came as a representative of Yahweh. You came as God himself. You uh, are still the king who is yet to come. You came once, but you are still the coming king. And we pray this morning that, Lord, as we just consider your first coming, that we'd look forward with great anticipation to your second coming, and that we would be counted amongst those who would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, God, we just ask uh, for your Spirit's blessing and unction and power upon the teaching of the word in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, I just wanted to read to you before we jump over to Matthew chapter 1, part of, or Matthew chapter 21, part of Psalm 118, and I'll pick it up in verse 19. It says this, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. That was Hebrew right there. It might say, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Matthew chapter 21. 
I titled this message this morning, uh, The King is Coming. Typically, in your Bible, you probably see it at the, the top of chapter 21 in Matthew. Our Bibles often title this passage of Scripture, The Triumphal Entry. And I think it's, it's likely fair to say that that might not be the best title for this passage of Scripture. It's something that's just kind of been applied. It's, that's a title that editors have added, added later. And I mean, really, if you think about it, Palm Sunday is the beginning of the end for Jesus' ministry, um, in a sense there, with the cross approaching. With Palm Sunday, we are entering in, the story of Palm Sunday, we are entering into the last week of Jesus' life and ministry um, 2,000 years ago. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, all devote a large portion of their gospel stories from this point on. I mean, you, could, you can look at each one of the gospel accounts and you'll see that the bulk of what they tell happens after the, the story that we call the triumphal entry. Um, and there is this intensity that is going to increase in the story of Jesus, as he does ministry, conflict is going to escalate for him as he goes about doing ministry. And it's going to culminate with the redemptive work of the cross just days after this so-called triumphal entry. Um, yeah, and, you, and you'll see if you, if you were to you know, go home this week and just read, I would encourage you to go home and, and spend time this week in, in the story from Palm Sunday on. And you'll, you'll see that each one of the four gospel accounts devote a large portion of their narrative to this part of Jesus' ministry and story. And so we know Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. By Friday, he is crucified. By the following Sunday, uh, he is raised from the dead one week later after this account here. In the days leading up to Palm Sunday, the intensity and the expectation, the messianic expectation that was put on Jesus as the Savior of Israel was increasing, I don't know, violently, I would almost say, amongst the people of Israel. It was reaching a fevered pitch. And it cranked up one of the significant events and miracles that Jesus performed that really caused things to ramp up just a short time before this was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, you recall the story that when Jesus visited the tomb of his friend in Bethany, Lazarus had been buried for four days already, in the ground for four days. And at his command, the stone was rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. The Bible tells us that he lifted his eyes to heaven he prayed to God in a loud voice, and then in a loud voice, he spoke in the hearing of the crowd, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the scripture tells us that the dead man came walking, no longer dead, was raised from the dead, out of the tomb, with his hands and his feet bound in linen strips, his face still wrapped in cloths. I mean, you can only imagine the scene, this zombie-like looking creature coming out of the tomb, but alive. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And the result of that happening was that increasingly more and more people were putting their faith in Jesus. That's what the gospel accounts tell us. In fact, it was happening so much more that 
that the religious establishment increasingly saw him as a threat, both to themselves and to the future of Israel. They were, they were, they were jealous of his ministry. They were concerned that as more and more people turned to him, that Israel would experience the, the wrath of the nation of Rome again. And so they plotted his murder. And the gospel accounts tell us that from that time on, Jesus actually withdrew into wilderness places to do his ministry. And he took the 12 with him. But the Passover was at hand. That time of celebration when the nation uh, came together to remember the redemptive work of God, how they were led out of the land of Israel, how the angel of death passed over their home when they had spread the blood of the lamb over the lintel and the doorposts of their home. And it was commanded that every Jewish male go to Jerusalem to celebrate that annual feast. And so with that approaching, Passover approaching, Jesus quietly began to make his way to uh, Jerusalem. Just outside of Jerusalem, John tells us six days before the Passover, it was Saturday night, the night before what we call Palm Sunday, in the town of Lazarus, Bethany, as Jesus reclined at the dinner table, having supper with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. John tells us that Mary took a pound of ointment of pure nard and she poured it over Jesus' feet and she washed his feet and she wiped them with her hair and the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. And at this whole scene, Judas, the one who was betrayed, would betray him, piped up and began to say, what a waste. This could have been sold and the money could have give, been given to the poor not because he cared for the poor did he make that comment, but because uh, the Bible tells us he was a thief and he would help himself to the, the money pocket of the, the money bag of the disciples. And Jesus said to her, leave her alone, said to him, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And as we know, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. It was that night, Saturday night, that Jesus was anointed for his burial. And the events of Palm Sunday that we're about to read here happened the very next day. Just to get a bit of context of what, what's going on in the city of Jerusalem, um, you have to recall that Jerusalem was a city of probably about 60,000 people. But at times of major festivals, especially Passover, the city would absolutely swell as the nation would descend upon it. It would go from 60,000 to like 2 million. It's hard to imagine that. You know, as we read in the Bible, all the little outlying towns, I just think, man, they would be all busting at their seams. Every town that was in, within walking distance, you know, Relatives were sleeping on the floor and sleeping on the couch and every inn was filled and, and every spot as people came to celebrate the time of Passover and Jerusalem was busting out its seams. And so let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 21. At this point, with these things in mind, we read this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. <coughs> Excuse me. The town of Bethpage and nearby Bethany are two little village that, villages that are to the east side of Jerusalem. They're maybe even built on the far hillside of the Mount of Olives. Interesting that the town of Bethpage means this, house of unripe figs. House of unripe figs. And so from Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, they traveled. The Mount of Olives, of course, dominates the skyline east of Jerusalem. In fact, if, if you come to Jerusalem from the east and you end up on the to- top of the Mount of Olives, you know, like when we have done our trips, actually, I didn't plug this this morning, but we have a, a, a trip to Israel being planned. In fact, Egypt and Jordan as well. The pamphlets are out this morning, uh, next year in 2016, this time, February, March. Um, when we've done our trips to Israel, the guides always take you through all these back roads and make sure that when you arrive in Jerusalem, you first come to the Mount of Olives so that you can see it as the viewpoint it is meant to be and look out over the city of Jerusalem. From there, you look down not over, only over the Kidron Valley below, but it's like from a bird's eye view, you get to see the Temple Mount. And I imagine in Jesus' day, of course, the temple stood there you would likely see the festivities and the sacrifices and the things that were happening on the Temple Mount as the priests went about their work. And so the Mount of Olives is a viewpoint that you go to to view the city of Jerusalem. And if there was one building at the time of Jesus that dominated the skyline of the city, it was the temple. And so Matthew, I would say, includes this this place And the names of Bethpage and the other gospels, they tell us they went through Bethany as well to the Mount of Olives to invoke something in his readers. And it's this, a messianic expectation. As he tells us that Jesus was taking this route, he is wanting his readers to understand this is the promised one. This is the Messiah In and of itself, the Mount of Olives is a significant place in Scripture. It's significant in Scripture because it is always associated with who? The Messiah. The the one who was to come. His appearing. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says this. I want to just read this to you. Then the Lord will go out and he will fight again. Talking about the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord. Then the Lord will go out and he will fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of the battle. And it says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies to the east of Jerusalem. 
And the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. If we were to turn to Acts chapter one and we were to read about Jesus ascension, we would read in Acts one that as Jesus was there with his disciples that final day, 40 days after he had been raised from the dead, he led his disciples from Jerusalem headed out up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And he instructed them that when he was gone, they were to stay in Jerusalem, that they were wait. They were to wait until the Holy spirit came who would empower them with power from on high. And they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as he spoke these things to him, to them, and as they looked on him, the, the scripture tells us that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And the disciples uh, stood there amazed. And the scripture says that as he went, they, they just stood there gazing into heaven. And two men clothed in white robes appeared with them. And they said this men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way You saw him go. It happened on the Mount of Olives. The Messiah was expected to appear at the Mount of Olives. That was the rabbinical tradition. That was what the scriptures prophesied. That's what the people of Israel expected. And so there was great messianic expectations surrounding Jesus. And where does he appear to Jerusalem from? The Mount of Olives. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time Matthew tells us about Jesus ever coming to Jerusalem. He saves it till right now. He wants us to get it. That This is it. This is the one. This is the Messiah. He's come. And in regards to the expectations surrounding Jesus, we, we know that the, the people... We're expecting the arrival of an earthly kingdom. Israel's enemies would be defeated, right? They'd be freed from the oppression of Rome. The kingdom of Israel will be restored. It'll be like the days of David and Solomon. And the Messiah will rule from Jerusalem. The one who's greater than David and greater than Solomon, the Messiah, the son of David, will rule. So how does God arrive at his city? How does the Messiah come to his people? Well, we read that he sends two disciples ahead. And he tells them with specific instructions to enter the village just ahead of him, where immediately they will find a donkey with its colt tied up. And there they are to untie those beasts of burden, those animals, and they are to bring them to him. And while they are doing so, should anyone ask them what they are doing, untying the animals, they should say, the Lord has need of it, and they'll be free to go. So they went, and they found things just as Jesus said to them. They untied the donkey, they untied the colt, And sure enough, the other gospels tell us that they were asked, what are you doing? 
Why are you untying those animals? And they replied, the Lord has need of it. And they were free to go. Now, except for the fact that we know the end of the story, we know where things are are going 2,000 years later, that the cross is coming, that there's going to be a resurrection. I mean, if, if you take that out of the picture, if we could for a moment in our mind's eye, this is a bit of an odd part to this story. Really? A donkey and it's cold. The gospels tell us that the disciples did not realize the significance of what they were doing uh, to and for the Lord until after he had been raised from the dead. Then all the dots connected for them. Oh, 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 we were participating in the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecies that are hundreds of years old. And Jesus summoned, summoned a cult. The king was coming and he did not procure a, a chariot with mighty stallions, but a colt. And for that matter, a borrowed one. He had nothing of this world's goods. That which he had was borrowed or lent to him. And the fact that Jesus instructed his disciples to go to the next village and, and borrow a donkey was not... Uh, Anything that was subject to chance or good luck or happenstance or based on a hunch. Yeah, I think last time we were there, I saw it, it was none of that. This was no fluke. The omniscient, all-knowing Jesus, his omniscience and his knowledge extends not just over the human heart, not just over death, not just over sickness, not just over disease, his his omniscient even extends to all of creation, including the animal kingdom. Kind of a neat thought. Scripture tells us that God cares for the sparrows. That he cares for the lily of the field. That he takes care to ensure that even oxen are fed. He knows all of his creatures and he makes them to serve his purposes. And so he sent his disciples to retrieve a donkey and her colt. Jesus also has power over the spirit of, of man. The, the scripture tells us, the Proverbs tell us that the king, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And the Lord directs him what he should do. And Jesus asserted his his right over creation by summoning the donkey and the colt to himself. And at the same time, he saw in his disciples that potentially that maybe they, they would fear what the owners might think. He foresaw that the two disciples might want to resist the instruction. He foresaw that his disciples uh, might not want to take the animal without consent of the owner. And so he told the disciples, if anyone asks you what you are doing, tell him the Lord has need of it. I think about this and I would say this. You see, what Jesus sends us to do, he gives us the power to do. He equips us with answers to the objections of others. Jesus, in commanding the donkey and the colt into his service, showed that he was the Lord of hosts, the same Lord who employed Balaam's donkey to speak to him and rebuke him. 
He showed that he is the God of all spirit, the spirits of, of flesh who can bow men's will to his instruction. And so he called the donkey and he sent his disciples to retrieve it. In Isaiah 62, verse 11, it says this. Calvin, can you flash that one up there for us? Matthew tells part of this verse and he tells part of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He almost marries them together as this scene is unfolding. And Matthew says this. Behold, the Lord is, or sorry, Isaiah records this. Isaiah 62, 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Matthew also quotes the words of Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus, as he is coming to Jerusalem, is consciously making preparations to enter the city after the fashion that the scripture prophesied the Messiah would come. In fulfillment to the word of God, in fulfillment to Isaiah chapter 62 and Zechariah 9.9, the king comes humbly with salvation, riding on a foal, the the colt of a donkey. You know, when you turn to Zechariah chapter Nine. I'm not going to get you to do that this morning, but I would encourage you to do that. It's a, it's a chapter that prophesies about the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. And interesting, you know, we, we see that Jesus fulfills Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But that whole chapter is about his coming. Not just the one verse. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9 is fulfilled, but there's many parts of Zechariah chapter 9 which are yet to be fulfilled because he is the king who came and he is the king who is yet coming. And those scriptures will be fulfilled as well. Now, Matthew chapter 21, it says this in verse seven. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put their, they, and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Seated on a colt. The the colt in scripture, the donkey is a picture of peace, uh, a symbol of peace. When kings came riding in on a donkey, they were coming as bearers of peace. And we see in Jesus that, that his temperament here, he's mild, he's, he's meek. Though he, though he has a heart for this city, as the gospels tell us in other spots, that though he foresaw their rejection of him, though he saw, foresaw their future destruction, he wept over this city. And he approaches on the donkey, Jesus the Messiah, and he will be their king. And as he nears, they just picture him, he's unarmed. There's no sword strapped to his side. Rather than being draped in 
the robes of royalty. He's wearing the clothes of the common man. Rather than arriving with the stride under the with the stride of a battle-tested warhorse underneath him, he arrives on a colt, seated on a colt, a creature not made for state, not made for royalty, but a creature that's made for service, a creature that's designed to bear burden, not battle. Imagine the colt, you know, it's not a warhorse, it's slow. It's slow and it's steady and it's sure and it's safe and it's constant in its motions. And King Jesus rode the colt, the Messiah, coming in humility with gentleness and peace. You know, the colt is a burst of, uh, uh, the colt is an animal that's a, a beaten of, uh, uh, sorry, a beast of burden. You know, you almost see that picture of Jesus. He's going to bear the burden of his people. He's going to bear the burden of his people. And the crowds recognize much of the messianic implications, but they don't seem to fully grasp the colt, the donkey, that he's coming in peace, that he's not coming to establish a, a, a military kingdom. They thought he was at this time going to restore the fortune of Israel and they failed to see that he was a king on a mission that was far greater than restoring the fortunes of Israel. The humble servant king, the Messiah, would redeem all mankind by his death and his resurrection. What equipment did he have with him? I would just say a humble heart and a spirit of obedience that was willing to obey his father. He's an example that God can do much with a humble and obedient life. And I mean, you read the story and who accompanied him? Were there officials of state? Politicians? The wealthy? War heroes? Was he accompanied by royalty or nobles? Nope. Just simple common folk, northerners, lots of Galileans, people with funny accents. Many were poor. They were not exactly the entourage that should accompany a king when he arrives to take his place. And I would say this, we see that in our calling. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. You can flash that one up, Calvin. Paul said this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's Jesus with his entourage. I read, I read those last, that last verse of chapter nine, 29. I thought, there it is. It's like fulfilled in this story, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. They had no idea. These commoners were in the presence of God as he rode in that, on that donkey. 
And so what did they do? Well, they brought the donkey and the colt to him and he got on it. And it says that they laid their, or they laid their cloaks before he got on it, on the, on the colt. And most of the crowd that went along with them spread their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus and the colt rode over their cloaks. And I imagine this picture that as they were laying their cloaks down and Jesus comes riding along and he goes over their cloak, they kind of circled around in the back and they picked it up and they went again to the front and they laid it down again. Time after time after time, laying their cloaks in front of him as he made his way down the Mount of Olives and towards the city of Jerusalem. And it's a great picture for us because those who take Jesus Christ as their king must lay everything at his feet. Everything must be laid at the feet of Jesus. And we are to lay everything at his feet and it's to become the pattern of our lives. Like those people would pick up their cloaks and put it back in front of him. And he continued to go in that pattern until they arrived at the city of Jerusalem. And I would say this for us. We continually lay our lives down before the king until he brings us to the city of Zion, to that heavenly city. If Jesus is your king, you must lay down your life. Paul said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 1 John 3.16 says this, by, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives. They laid their cloaks before him. Matthew tells us still others cut down branches from the trees and they laid them on the road. They used to do the same thing during this, the time of Passover, but also during the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14 prophesies that in the day when the Lord is king over the whole earth and he is seated in Jerusalem and his rule is from sea to sea, the nations will come to Jerusalem and they will worship him as kings. They will worship him as the Lord of hosts and they will keep the feast of tabernacles. And the palm branches in the feast of tabernacles and even on this day of Palm Sunday, they are a token or they are an emblem of liberty uh, of victory and of joy in the work of the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. I think about tabernacle and that, that sense, the feast of tabernacles. It is God, a celebration of God dwelling with his people. And unwittingly, I don't think they really recognize what they are doing. The crowd is cutting palm branches and waving them as they worship Jesus and laying them at his feet. And, and in, a, in a sense, they, although they don't know what they're doing, they're fulfilling scripture and they're recognizing that God is dwelling with his people. That the king, the messianic king, uh, the Lord is tabernacling, tabernacling and dwelling in the midst of his people as their king. Somehow, they were acknowledging liberty and victory and joy in the work of Jesus as they waved those branches. And what they said was this, Hosanna. Hosanna, they were crying it as they went. Hosanna to the son of David. 
They were proclaiming Jesus as their Messiah and doing so, calling him the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Save us now. Save us, son of David. Save us, Messiah. And they sang those words, repeating them from Psalm 118, singing and shouting and and reminiscent of Luke chapter 2 when the angels sang at Jesus' birth. They also said, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in heaven as well as here on earth. And they welcomed his kingdom. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118, which I read a little bit earlier. Psalm, those Psalms, uh, 113 to 118, a little bit further than that into the 120s are, are called the Psalms of Ascent. They were psalms that were sung by the children of Israel as they celebrated feast times and would go to the temple and go to worship God. They would sing these songs as they ascended up to the temple and they would repeat the words. And they were now proclaiming those words over Jesus, the son of David. Hosanna, save us. And in their singing and in their shouting, they were acknowledging him as king. And Jesus ascended was ascending to the temple, to the highest point of the city. You know, interesting that Jesus will later, a couple chapters later in, in Matthew, will himself quote from Psalm 118, and he will say this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone of himself. And in their hosannas, they, they implied a well-wishing to his kingdom. They were blessing his kingdom. Uh, They were speaking their desire that his kingdom would be uh, prosperous and that success would accompany it and that there would be victory in the kingdom. It's like they're saying, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. God, send prosperity to this kingdom. Send your blessing to this kingdom. Send your blessing upon this king and over his rule. And their expression of praise, blessing Jesus as the one who was to come, was an acknowledgement that he was the representative of Yahweh himself. The one who comes representing Yahweh. And in this case specifically, that he was Yahweh. Jesus would later use the same quotation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He would speak it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. As he lamented over Jerusalem, he would say this, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Speaking of his second coming. Hosanna in the highest, implying praise to Yahweh. And so the picture here as Jesus comes, this whole scene in in your heart and in your mind is a royal procession. The king coming into his city. The whole picture conveys celebration and honor. You know, it's reminiscent of what we might think of of a mighty general coming back to his city after a great uh, war victory or... Or, you know, what might have happened in different times in the Old Testament when kings would come into their city. And for a short time, 
the people would acknowledge Jesus and his true identity as the sovereign son of David. But in doing so, they would fail in a certain sense. They would fail to identify him also, not just as the the son of David, the sovereign son of David, but they failed to recognize him as the sacrificial son of Abraham. They knew that he had come to restore the kingdom, but they missed the fact that he was also there to redeem his people. They anticipated the sovereignty, but they overlooked the sacrifice that would happen at the cross. Jesus would not exercise rule over Jerusalem without first making redemption for the world. It says in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 21, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. At his arrival, Matthew tells us the whole city was stirred up. You have to get this picture. The original language, when it says the city was stirred up, uses a Greek word that is very specific. It's specific to describe an earthquake or an apocalyptic upheaval. This city was literally not shaken by an earthquake, but it was shaken in its heart. In the heart of the people, they said, what's going on here? Who is this? Who is this man who comes on a donkey? Whom the people worship. And it was as if Jerusalem was shaken by an earthquake. There was a groundswell in in human hearts. And Jerusalem was a city that, you know, I would describe in many ways was frozen with religious formality at this point in time. But the enthusiasm that was associated with worshiping Jesus as the people praised him, stirred it up like a mighty wind had come through that city or like an earthquake had shaken its foundations. The king had come to Jerusalem and the citizens asked this, who is this? Who is this? And for Matthew, as he recounts the story, he wants us as readers to ask the same question. Who is this? Who is this Christ? Who is this man? Who is this representative of Yahweh? Who is this sovereign son of David? Who is this sacrificial son of Abraham? Who is this? And the multitude answered and they said, it's the prophet. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The prophet, not a prophet. This is the prophet, the crowd said. This is the one promised by Moses in Deuteronomy. Me chapter 18. One will come after me who is like me, but greater than me. Luke recorded that that in Luke chapter 19, that Jesus wept over this city. And he told the religious leaders at that time that 
if they had recognized a day that had come to them and that it would have brought them peace, but at this point it was hidden from their eyes. They, they weren't able to clearly identify uh, who this was and it was because the work of the cross still needed to happen. You, know, you think of this picture of King Jesus appearing and for me one of the most significant Old Testament texts that I would encourage you to go home and study and read and look uh, to was one that was written more than 500 years before this day. God revealed to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 that 483 years after the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, Daniel chapter 9 verse 25, that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. History tells us, or we read, not only history, but we read in our Bibles that the Persian king Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem in the 12th year of his reign in the month of Nisan. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 records it and tells it. And when you think of the calendar, the Jews did not use the solar calendar that we use today. Um, their calendar is based on a year that's 360 days, not 365 days. And so when you take Daniel's prophecy and the things that were revealed to him and you consider uh, the calendar in a 360, 360 uh, day year, uh, although the exact day isn't given, um, in 444 BC, when Artaxerxes made the command, let's call it the first, if it was the first of Nisan, 483 years later to the very day was March 30th on our calendar. March 30th, the year 33 AD. To the very day prophesied by the scripture, the king appeared the very day prophesied and revealed to Daniel, the king appeared in Jerusalem, the Messiah. And it was on that Sunday before Passover that in the celebration of the Jewish people that they would select their lamb that was to be slain. Interesting that that's the day Jesus appeared in Jerusalem. King Jesus appeared in Jerusalem and he presented himself as the Passover lamb. He came in peace, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so this event on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into the city, it, it marks the official, I would say, official presentation of Jesus to the nation of Israel and to the world as the rightful son of David, the Messiah. And as the crowds asked, who is this? The multitude that was with him said, this is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And, you know, the crowd betrays something here about themselves that they don't truly understand or comprehend who this is. They, they, they don't recognize that Jesus, though he grew up in Nazareth, is the prophesied king who was born in Bethlehem. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They're saying truth, but they're missing the fact that he is the Messiah born in Bethlehem. And so Jesus, commissioned by God both to 
declare the kingdom of heaven as a prophet and to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven as arriving in Jerusalem as its king, the Passover lamb who would give his life for the world. The king over a spiritual kingdom rather than a political kingdom. We know that Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming to Jerusalem was to die on the cross. But he makes it clear and the scriptures make it clear that his vision is long-term. Not only did he arrive that day to be a Passover sacrifice, not only did he give his life on the cross, not only was he raised from the dead in that city, but his vision stretches out across all of human history. What a great thought. King Jesus. And his followers, you know, as his followers, we take strength in his death and his resurrection. And we live desiring his sovereign rule over his life, over our lives. And we live with the remembrance of his first coming, but we live, are called to live with an expectation and a looking forward to his second coming. And so I would say this, you know, it's not merely riding on a donkey that makes Jesus humble. His very appearance to come to earth and to be clothed in human flesh was a step of humility. And Jesus continues to take steps of humility towards his creation, towards his people that he desires to serve him and that he desires to be a part of his kingdom. He is continuing to take steps of humility. You know, Paul said this about him. He said, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And nothing is more noteworthy than this, that the Jesus of all glory became a servant, a man of no reputation, so that he could save us from the power of sin and death. All of this humility he did in a service of obedience to his father. Jesus, the coming one, the one whom God had commissioned to come into the world to bring salvation. And just as Jesus needed a donkey, a colt, to fulfill that scripture, so the Father in heaven needed Jesus to ride it and he commissioned his son to go and save the world. And so although this event is, you know, often called the triumphal entry, it's, it's really became by betrayal and crucifixion and death that Jesus became the king of our lives. That he rules over us and that he's inaugurated his kingdom. You know, in the Old Testament there in, in Psalm 118, it says, bind the festal cord, bind the festal sacrifice with cords and affix it to the horns of the altar. Meaning this, take the sacrifice and bind it up, tie it and tie it to the horns of the altar. You know, you think about 
an animal being sacrificed. I imagine going to the temple, the smell of blood was in the air and it knew what was coming. And I imagine that the animals that were sacrificed there resisted that which was happening to them. But the beauty of Jesus is this. He was bound, not with human ropes. He was bound with the love of God for us to save us. Nails didn't hold him to the cross. Love held him to the cross. And so the story of the triumphal entry as we enter this uh, Easter season, the King is coming. The King is coming. Let's pray to the one who is and is to come. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Jesus, this morning we worship you as the coming King. And God, we're so thankful that you came not in the pomp and the might of human kings. You came not with the sword strapped to your horse or onto your side or on a war horse. But you came in humility. You came with a heart of obedience. You came to establish your spiritual rule over the human hearts. And God, today we thank you for that rule and we invite you, Jesus, to rule in our lives. We invite you, Jesus, uh, to rule in our hearts. We invite you, Jesus, to rule in our church. And we thank you that you are the humble king. We thank you that you are the gracious king. We thank you that not only are you the sovereign son of David, but you are the sacrificial son of Abraham who gave his life for the world, the Lamb of God. And so Jesus, just as you were welcomed into Jerusalem that day 2,000 years ago, so we welcome you into our hearts today. We welcome you into our hearts today and we invite you to rule. In Jesus' name, amen.